about 17 or 18 years ago, I was ice fishing with some buddies of mine up in northern Indiana. And I'm going to tell this story, but I have to preface it by saying the ice fishing code of conduct demands that I omit the names of anyone involved. It's a code that I take seriously, and I only mention any of this as a cautionary tale. But we were on our way back from ice fishing, and we saw this little cafe that had a sign out front that said Pumpkin Spice Coffee. And we thought, what the hell, we might as well give that a try. When we walked in, and we sat down, everything spiraled downhill from there. And I remember us sitting around this table, me and my buddies, and we're drinking that crap. Just tasted terrible. And at one point, one of the guys started talking about his feelings. And I thought to myself, dear God, what in the hell have we become? And I swore to myself at that very moment, that if I could just get back in the truck and head on home, I'd never drink anything but black coffee again. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Roger Allen Wade. Roger is a singer and a songwriter, and he and his cousin Johnny Knoxville co-host the Big Ass Happy Family Jubilee on Sirius XM Radio's Outlaw Country. You can find out everything you need to know about Roger at facebook.com slash Music. Rogers had songs recorded by people like Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, George Jones, and Hank Jr. I caught up with Roger when he was in town playing at the Loveless Cafe, and I'd like to thank my buddy Matt Stevens for hooking us up a room where we could go and, and chat. It was kind of a backstage area. It was all concrete, so there's a lot of reverb. I apologize for that. And Roger was really animated, where he was all over the mic. Sometimes he spoke into it, sometimes he spoke out into the room, but we were having a really good time and I didn't really care that much and I think the audio still sounds fine, but I just wanted to warn you about that. Here's Roger Allen Wade. In Chattanooga, I was born in Knoxville and, uh, you know, they'd have it on every Saturday evening. And uh, from a local studio, TV studio. And then we moved on to Chattanooga and was scared to death they wouldn't have, you know, quality wrestling down there. But but sure <laughs> enough, they did and uh, didn't didn't lose a step, man. And uh, it was, I grew up, me and my brothers whacking each other with folding chairs and, uh, you know, hiding stuff in our trunks and uh, <laughs> just doing dirty tactics. Oh, yeah, Bearcat Brown and uh, Ron Wright with the warp your head off move. And then down uh, 
And then Tojo Yamamoto and the great Jackie Fargo. Yeah, Fargo, man, the Fargo strut. I still use that from time to time when I'm courting heavy. <laughs> this was actually in Chattanooga where I remember most of it. Now, in, in, in Knoxville, also, I remember the Scuffling Hillbillies, if you remember them. Then they had this little skinny Hawaiian. <laughs> uh, I can't remember. His name was Sammy something. I remember him. And then the Mongolian Stomper. Remember the old stomper who was neither from Mongolia or did a lot of stomping, but he, he had a Fu Manchu. Ron Wright, who invented the warp your head off move. That was his signature. That was his go-to move, man. And uh, uh, I don't know exactly what it what did it, but that's probably one of the all-time great go-to moves, you know, finishing moves. Yeah, I think he was. I think he was just coming coming alive, and that's the last I heard of him. So the that people must have figured out the warp your head off move pretty quick. It worked great there for a short time, and then it was a hanging curveball. I think it probably got him out of the business. My my brothers and my mama used to go all the time. They wouldn't miss it, and uh, mama'd get mad. You know, some people thought it was fake, and that really uh, that was, and that really irritated my mom. And my aunt Lemoyne, she, you know, when people would think it was fake and stuff like that, they'd hit them with a like a rolling pin or something <laughs> like that, and say, "How fake is that?" <laughs> well, Tennessee was wrestling was huge in Tennessee, oh, especially Memphis. You know, uh, with the big. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, where, they, where they had Jerry Lawler and all them big timers. You know, and uh, uh, that was. I mean, them people had capes and cars and. Uh, women and everything you know that was for real wrestling and uh, man i tell you what anybody brave enough to get out there in them speedos and go <laughs> hook up hook up collar and elbow with a sweaty man has my respect <laughs> a lot of people don't realize rick rubin was the person who funded the smoky mountain wrestling i did not know that yeah he uh was a big wrestling fan and he met Jim Cornette, and then asked if Jim Cornette would introduce him to Ric Flair. That's awesome. And uh, somehow they created a friendship, and he ended up, uh, you know, funding Smoky Mountain Wrestling for quite a while. Wow. Yeah. I don't know what it is about Knoxville, and particularly South Knoxville. It's like all the crazy people when they was when back in the old days when there's heading west, all the crazy people just stopped there, so we ain't going no further. <laughs> and, and, the, and it's just over the years, it's just got nuttier and nuttier. And the, the most truly insane people I've ever met in my life are from Knoxville and South Knoxville. And uh, I guess that's why wrestling took a hold in a genius like Rick Rubin that could recognize true madness and true genius and, you know, the beauty and crazy things. I guess he saw that himself. But, um, it, it is. There's just something particularly crazy about that part of the world. First time I ever saw Waylon was in Chattanooga, and I guess it was 1976. The mother of my children was pregnant with the first daughter, and my mom and dad had got us tickets to go see Waylon. And it was at an auditorium there, and I didn't know much about music or guitars or anything, but I knew I liked that. You know, I just knew he was something, and he really attracted to me. And I and he was and he had Buddy Holly's original Crickets with him, and Jesse Coulter. So they opened up, and then uh, the Crickets were playing. Well, all right. Well, I knew, and here comes way more out at, during the last verse, and I knew enough to know that that old black and white telly was supposed to be plugged in, and it wasn't plugged in, and my heart just sank. I was like, man, he's a fraud. You know, this is just, that, that you know, that's not right. And man, after they finished that song, 
he plugged that thing in and grabbed him a handful of D and started walking that line, man, and I'd never seen nothing like it. it. I went the next day and got me a guitar, and I've never quit since. That was the defining moment. You know, he was Elvis to me. He was, he, man, that, that, and that was the first time I ever got to see him. It was called Memorial Auditorium in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, he had on that old flat hat, back in them old flat hat days, he'd have it and, <laughs> and had it back there on his head. And I guess he'd been up for about a week and did, as remains the greatest show I've ever seen in my life and seen all my heroes. But that is the single most, the single greatest show I ever saw. After he'd done everything and just thought there wasn't no more. I mean, he'd done blown the roof off and everybody was just raising hell, wanting him to come back out. And he came back out and cut into honky tonk heroes and that place come apart brick by brick, brother. It was, it was just amazing. Playing in Chattanooga had to have been the core of the hardcore Wayland fans. Yeah. Too. I mean, and that's what's so amazing to me. You know, for them, it was probably just a nowhere stop in between, you know, maybe bigger dates or something. And so you know it probably what he wasn't on his game or he wasn't really all that fired up about it, but still, it was magic. You know, he just took that with him, and and uh, uh, it was just really inspiring and remains inspiring to this day just because of that kind of thing you're talking about. Did you ever get to meet him by chance? One time, and I really didn't get to meet him then. He had – Johnny Cash had just gotten out of the Betty Ford Center – and Waylon and Jesse were having him a party for his recovery, you know? And it was at Waylon and Jesse's house. And Robert Duvall was there and Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson and Hank Williams Jr. and John and June and uh, just a bunch, a whole bunch of people. And it was at Waylon and Jesse's house. And Waylon never said much at all, but he was the funniest man in the room. He just, he just dominated the room. And he had on this, oh, I'll never forget, he had on, it was like a 1950s themed party. And everybody had on this stuff, but Waylon had on, he looked like a really cheap private detective with a flower in his, a, a boutonniere on his uh, old blue suit. <laughs> but he was so proud of it. He looked like he really thought he was really dressing up good. And, you know, you, I guess he knew it was kind of a, you know, just an old suit and everything, but the way he pulled it off and just the way. All them cats were my heroes, you know. They were all, and and uh, it had to be intimidating to be in that room, right? Well, there. it was. It was just. It was fascinating. I didn't really know at the time, you know. Hell, I didn't have any sense, and I didn't really understand at the time what it was. I was just a kid, you know. Just got up here writing songs and wound up there. But it was a little heady. But still, it was like there's Waylon, there's Jesse, there's Chris, there's Willie, you know, all the all the cool things. And um, but still, that was the only time. I didn't even really get to meet him, but I was right there in his house and, you know, he was standing right there and I was just a little overwhelmed by it. There was way more, you know, and it was, it was a very sweet time. I never did. I spent like 20 years up here, maybe more back and forth. I had the luxury of being from Chattanooga, which was in driving distance and my children were there. So I wanted to be around them. And, but I'd come up, you know, and I, I, um, Stayed at John and June's house, you know, off and on in the early years. I'd be, stay out there. And then I went on. I stayed at May Axton, had a little shack out behind her place that she would let me stay in when Hoyt wasn't in town. Or I think Arlo Guthrie stayed there a lot. And I'd stay in, in that little place for a time. And then I had other friends I'd stay with. I, I never really moved here per se. You know, I'd just sleeping on couches and, and living off the kindness of strangers, you know, for 20 years. And I'd ride the Greyhound bus up here, and I learned all these tricks about riding that bus back in the day, man. You just 
get you some dark sunglasses and a bunch of newspapers and wad them up and because in buses always be packed, you know, but if you got you these newspapers and watered them up and drooled and had on dark glasses, <laughs> nobody, you'd always get your own seat and get plenty of room. And, and uh, that was even among most of the time at bus stations, you're not the only one sitting there talking to nobody. You know, there's a lot of people talking to the walls and talking to things you can't see. And, um, but that was, that made it a lot easier and get you stretch out that way. And so I would take the bus back and forth, you know, then when I had a car, I'd take my car back and forth. And, um, and then I just kind of, it was personal back then. It seemed, you know, you could take your songs up and down the street or you knew everybody. And then all of a sudden it seemed like it turned that corner and got kind of corporate and it wasn't fun no more. And I wasn't really that interested in hard work. So when it quit being fun, I just stayed home. Oh, that was in the early days. I was writing for a publishing company, and one day they, this girl, I, I come in the office early that morning. There's this, there's this girl there, you know, and and so we're just sitting around, you know, waiting to see the main guy and get to talking. I don't have any idea who she is, you know. This was an everybody was wanting, you know, cuts by T.G. Shepard. When I'm not knocking these cats, I'm just saying it was mainstream cuts. You know, Steve Warner, who I admire those cats, and but this was the main, and I was like. I don't give a damn about getting cuts by there. I wanted to cut by Johnny Cash and Johnny Cash was getting, you know, he couldn't get arrested. And she was like, you like Johnny Cash? I said, yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, if I want, I want to, I want Johnny Cash cut or I want a guy Clark cut or John prime. And they're like, you ain't going to make no money like that. I, like, I don't care about money. You know, there's plenty of money in the world. I just want them cats. And so it turns out it's his, it's his daughter, Rosie. And, and, and so she, the next day she shows up with June, you know, they're like, yeah, there he is. You know, that's the guy that wants, you know, Johnny Cash cuts and don't, you know, cause I was, everybody was giving me hell about it and I was standing up for him, you know? And, uh, um, and so then we all became friends and Rose would stay down at my mom and dad's and we all went, you know, we had a little band, we'd go on the road together and, and I'd stay out at John and June's all the time, you know, just come and go as I please. And they were so kind to me and so good. And, and I'm so grateful for those times. And, and, uh, what year was this? This had to, man, that's a tough question. This, I would say early 80s. I really don't know for sure. It's kind of like those people that say that if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. It's kind of like <laughs> if, if, I, if I pretend to remember a lot of this, you, you weren't there. Because, yeah, it was pretty much nonstop through Reagan and Carter and all that. <laughs> I mean, a couple of administrations. And, and I'll tell you one time that meant the most to me. And because I admire, I admire Guy so deeply that I don't think I could ever work with him or, or, uh, you know, do any, I opened a show for him down in Chattanooga one time and I was playing the same joint on, it was like a Friday and a Saturday, I think. And so I went in on the Friday, I was opening for guy and, um, I probably really sucked and I didn't think much about it. I was just misplaying <laughs> some stuff I'd just written and I got, I was just wanting to get off and hear him. And so I got off, heard him, and he just made me want to go home, rip up everything I'd ever done. And the next night, it was somebody, I think it was Jimmy Dale Gilmore was in town, and I was opening for him. And, I, man, I walk in the bathroom, still been up all night, and I walk in the bathroom, and, you know, I just kind of splash my face off and get ready to go out, and, and in walks Guy Clark, just me and him in the bathroom. And he said, in that Guy Clark voice, he says, the sky looks like rusted chrome. And I was like, I, I had sang that in a song I'd written the night before. He was like, I was like, 
what? He goes, man, that's why I came back. I had to hear that again. And I was like, man, it's, that's <laughs> over with for me. Keep all the awards. Keep everything else. I, that, that meant more to me than anything. All I know, like, one thing I can say about Hank Williams Jr., I th- he, he just amazes me. Just his, his talent and his realness and all he's been through. And, you know, if I, I know 99% of the people I know would just go to the mailbox every month. They wouldn't still be out there busting it, creating new things and, and doing what Bocephus has done. And I do know that he has always treated me and anyone I'm with uh, with utmost kindness and respect and politeness been the sweetest cat ever and i know he gets out there uh, gets a little crazy sometimes but man he's always treated me and my family and friends just with just as sweet as you would ever as sweet as you would want him to be you know he's, he's the hero of mine well how did you find out that he was going to cut that song ah man seems like uh an old buddy of mine that was his guitar tech told me about it and I was like, man, you're drunk. You know, I mean, I didn't even know him. And he, he knew who I was and came up and told me that Hank Jr. had done that song. And I thought, no way, man, that song sucks. But not after <laughs> Hank got through with it. I mean, when Hank got done with it, it was, a, it was awesome. But, uh, yeah, he took me over and found a tape of it and played it. And it just, man, it changed my world. You know, I mean, it really helped. It helped me in so many ways. And I'm so grateful to Hank for that because he writes such great songs himself. And, he, uh, you know, just I'll, I'll be forever grateful for that, you know, and, and he, he just, man, I, I think people forget how huge he was back in the day. I mean, he was he was Elvis, man, and, and just so talented, so freaking good. Nobody wants to follow Bo Cephas. When he's through with them, they're wore out and ready to go home. <laughs> I do know when we were kids, man, not kids, we just first started playing, and my buddy, who was my bass player, he, he played banjo, but we didn't need a banjo player. He played bass, and we were the worst band in America. But he saw Willie Nelson jogging downtown because Willie and family were in town. This was real late 70s, I guess. And so, man, here we hightailed it down there, and they were staying at the Reed House. And um, so somehow we got up there where they were staying, and we peeked in the door and saw B and all. And, we, you know, we got to know all them guys later. But we peeked in there and saw them shooting pool. And they turned around. We took off running. And that, <laughs> that happened at the Reed House. We were so scared. But we got to see them. We got to see them. And we just love Willie, man. And and Amy and Paula and Raylan. All the Nelsons, man. This uh, Willie's just wonderful. I got to sing with him in Knoxville here about a month or two ago. Amy was there, his beautiful daughter. And it said, you want to come up and do the gospel finale? And I was like, what? Yeah. So because my daughter had wanted to go see him, Shandy had wanted to go see him because she lives in Knoxville. And I'd got Amy to set him up some tickets. So I thought, well, heck, I'll go too. And this was at the Coliseum there on the campus. And it was, Willie just had himself and his guitar and uh, somebody playing snare, and Sister Bobby and somebody playing stand-up bass, of course, Mickey on harp and mesmerized the whole place, man. So then it comes to the end. Amy says, come on, man. We're like, well, some glad morning when this life is over. And, I, and I, so it's just a few of us up there with Allison Krauss and those cats singing with Willie. And my daughter got some pictures of it. And it meant the world to me, truly meant the world. Willie was so sweet, you know. I guess he knew it meant the world just from the look in his eye. Man, just for an old hillbilly, that's about as cool as it is. 
Man, you talk about cats that love music. Johnny Knoxville um, is a true music lover and just loves Willie Nelson, loves Waylon, loves Johnny Cash. Uh, that's where he got, you know, the thing about it. Hello, I'm Johnny Knoxville from Johnny Cash. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. But loves those cats, everything real and good, you know. And he inspires me constantly. And, and he's a tough taskmaster. You know, he'll put up with anything as long as he knows you're giving it your all. If he thinks you're slacking, man, he's got too much to do, you know, to waste his time. But I love the way we make records. We just finished our new record that'll be coming out here. Hopefully have it out by the holidays. Finished recording it out in Santa Monica with our friend Dan Creech at Revolving Blackbird, where it's just me and Knoxville and Dan Creech in a room. And the only way we know if, when it's good is when Knoxville gets chill bumps. Otherwise, you keep keep it going. But when <laughs> if you do it one time and he gets chill bumps, don't ask to do it again. You know, it's just uh, – and it keeps you moving. It keeps you really – you know, that, having that audience and someone you know cares about it. And uh, just can't say how much – you know, he's meant to my life and my career and just, just a dear, dear soul. Brilliant man and true lover of music. You guys are cousins, aren't you? First cousins. Our moms are sisters. Well, it just bummed me out that those cats, I mean, if they're not getting awards, I wasn't really, I was like, then what's this worth, you know? Uh, it's, 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 uh, You're talking about Chris Christopherson and yeah, Guy Clark. And- yeah, exactly. But I knew, I knew where Billy Joe Shaver went to drink, and so I went down there, and I, uh, I was going to give it to him. And I, they had the medallion, this swanky medallion they'd given you, and and the certificate. And to his credit, he said, he said, "You take that to your mother; she'll she'll appreciate that." And I did, and and he was right about that. But I was man, I was hell bent on giving it to him, and already signed it to him, and everything. My mother's got it hanging up, and it says to Billy Joe Shaver, and. Uh, can you tell people what the medallion was? I don't even know. It was like for winning an award for it was the song was called "Country State of Mind." That uh, um, and Hank did the heavy lifting on that. You know, I just had a I just had a title, and it was called "Volunteer State of Mind." And when I did it, the demo sounded like a bread commercial. <laughs> it was <laughs> awful, <laughs> and, and Hank just put his magic on it, man, like he can, and he, uh, he's so gifted and so brilliant and. And so I didn't feel all that responsible for it anyway. And, but I did want Billy Joe to have it because, I mean, who else writes that way? Other, you know, I mean, there's just a, there just ain't many people on the planet that know how to use language that way. And, and, and his melodies too, and his singing and everything about it, you know, to me, that's what made me want to do it and be, be there. And he gave about as much a damn about awards as I did, I guess. <laughs> but he did give me some sound advice about take it to my mom. He lived in a time when, when people actually lived a little bit, and uh, and it didn't happen in writing rooms on Music Row. Yeah, I don't know. I'm a little beige cubicle spook me, man. I just ain't. <laughs> I don't know what goes on there that I I still don't understand. Uh, there's so much about that I don't understand. I'm not knocking it. I'm not making any judgments. I'm just saying it don't work for me, man. I like writing them on the run. I like finding that place, wherever it may be, that you're just holding the pen and it's coming through you rather than, you know, you're sitting there. Um, and I put it this way many times. I don't know if many people get this, but if, you know, if we're going to be friends for a while, if I'm just telling you what I think you want to hear, 
We ain't going to be friends longer. We ain't going to be good friends or lasting friends. But if I'm telling you what's in my heart, what, I, what I'm feeling, what you know, whether we agree or disagree about I'm telling you honestly what I'm feeling, that to me ought to be music. And that was, that's what makes a song worth writing. Not, well, what does he want to hear? Let me think, see if I can think of what, let me think about what he wants to hear. Then I'll write that and tell him what he wants to hear. And, that, and that's what my father would call bullshit. I mean, you're just bullshitting somebody, and, and there ain't no there's enough of that in the world without me adding to it. You know, your father's a wise man. Thank you, man, and he truly is. I agree a hundred percent, and I've had those moments where I just Thank try you. to sort it out, and uh, you know, yeah, it all comes down to that for me. You know, it's like uh, a discerning ear can hear the difference when they're listening to something. I think too. so, and you know it when you hear it. You know it when and. And we're all probably guilty of doing those things. You know, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone because I'm probably as guilty as anyone. But that's my goal. That's that's where I set the bar, is to try to strive to be as honest with myself and others, especially when it comes down to asking them to take time to listen to my song. I don't want to steal three minutes of their life bullshitting them. You know, I, I mean, if they're going to give me three minutes of their life, I want them to know what's on my mind and what's, you know, what's in my heart. And uh, and I'm not asking them to agree with me or to like it, but you are asking, you are telling me this comes with one guarantee that it's honest. It may suck, but it's honest. And, and, and everything else, uh, everything else, I guess, just, you know, you just got to roll with that much of it. Man, I appreciate you taking time man, to chat with me. What, what a pleasure, man. What a pleasure. And let's do this again. Yeah, it's I'll, great I'll, chatting I'll, with you, man. I'll be healed up here next time. We can talk longer. But, man, what, a, what an absolute pleasure, my friend. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Roger for meeting up with me there at the Loveless Cafe. You can find out everything you need to know about Roger at facebook.com slash Music. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.